Hello, thank you very much for coming. Today I would like to talk to you about the Greek tragedian Sophocles. So, Sophocles is born in 496 BC in Colonus. It's near Athens. He lives to be 90 years old. He dies in 4645. I always feel like this is worth mentioning because life expectancy in the ancient world is incredibly short and it sort of makes people think there aren't any old people. There are loads of old people. It's just loads of people die really young. <laughs> so, basically, the chances are you probably won't make it out of being born. Chances of making it to one, really slim. If you make it to one... You've still got to get to five. That's a lot of childhood diseases. If you make it to five, you stand a pretty good chance of making it to your early teens. At which point, if you're a boy, you probably go off and fight in a war. And if you're a girl, you start giving birth. <laughs> Once again, high mortality. So what you get is loads of people dying before they're 20 and some old people. <laughs> um, so Sophocles, 90. Aeschylus, very old when he died. Uh, it's the same in Rome. There are old people. I merely mention it. Sophocles wrote well over 100 plays. They were obviously all uh, played in competition at the Dionysia, or Dionysia, you might prefer, a big uh, religious and theatrical competition. We have no record of him ever coming less than second in that competition, and he comes first well over 20 times, I think 24 times. So he's incredibly popular. I think this is always worth mentioning because it's very tempting for people to see Greek tragedy as being high art for a sort of small audience of fancy people. It was never written that way. People would turn up at the theatre to celebrate Dionysus. He is not just the god of tragedy, he is the god of wine. <laughs> if you want to really, you know, see a Greek tragedy as it was intended, you should be at least three parts gone before you start watching it. <laughs> It's what he would have wanted. Um, of all those plays that he wrote, only seven survive to the present day. Those are the three Theban plays. They are not a trilogy, but they look like one. So Oedipus the King, Oedipus at Colonus, and the Antigone. And then four other plays, the Electra, the Philoctetes, which is about someone with a gammy foot. Um, <laughs> I mean, he's got a bow and a gammy foot. Those are the two main things you need to know about Philoctetes. Oedipus, also a gammy foot, in case you didn't know, Oedipus means swollen foot. Uh, what was I saying? Oh yeah, the Trachinii, which is uh, Hercules and his wife, and Ajax, which we'll also come to in a minute. So, only seven plays uh, survive from the whole lot, which is a shame, because Sophocles is an incredibly important part of the development of drama. At the beginning of the 5th century BC, a drama wasn't a drama at all. What you would have is one actor in front of a kind of chorus of dancers and singers, and they would give basically a recitation. And then Aeschylus comes along and he invents drama because he says, what if a second person came on stage? They could, they could totally have a chat. <laughs> I paraphrase very slightly. Um, and then Sophocles comes along and he realises that while two people are having a chat, if someone else interrupted them, now you're cooking, right? <laughs> So every time you watch anything where more than two people are talking on stage, on screen, at any time, that is Sophocles. We have to thank for that. He's the one who thought, wait, that could be exciting. And he was right. <laughs> I went to visit Edith Hall, Professor of Classics at King's College London, and I asked her to explain how Sophocles became involved in writing drama. Sophocles' father was an arms factory owner, which isn't a very nice sort of thing for him to have been at all, but you need an awful lot of arms to be made in the ancient democratic city-state um, because all the guys who got the vote, which was all the free male citizens, had to go and defend their own rights on the battlefield. So they all needed a big bronze shield and a big bronze sword and a big bronze helmet. So surprise, surprise, Sophocles' father became 
really quite rich. Yes, good business in them there, bronze. Exactly. <laughs> Which gave Sophocles the leisure to have a proper humanistic education and become the incredibly enlightened, intelligent person he was. He wanted desperately to be an actor, but his voice just wasn't big enough. So you were in like tragedy families so you either wrote them or you starred in them so we had to stop starring in them and decided to write them which is a very good thing for the rest of us because it means we got plays like the Oedipus and the Antigone. Sophocles did actually grow up to be a general himself which means that he not only ran large sections of the army um, in Athens but the general was even more important than that he also got to take very important executive decisions about policy and he had to argue their case and put them in front of the Athenian democracy basically what I'm saying is he had experience of leadership in the city and that is crucial to understanding him because all of his um, plays are about people who are absolutely abysmally bad at running cities and the point is that the Athenians like took it seriously coming from him because they knew he'd actually done it and it's a really rare job being a general in um, Athens because it's one of the only ones that people vote for, right? You don't just get appointed by lot to be a general. You, Absolutely. You have to impress people. When he was a very old man and there was a huge horrible crisis in 413 after a terrible disaster when lots and lots of Athenians died um, away in battle, there was a committee of extremely old, trusted safe pairs of hands suddenly formed and he was immediately asked to come back and try and help sort matters out. So he was unbelievably trusted. All the ancient testimonies about Sophocles say that he was a very happy man. Lots of unhappy people, but Sophocles was actually incredibly happy. He had a charmed life. He didn't have bad bereavements and so on. He didn't himself suffer as much as a lot of his his people did, which makes it all the more paradoxical that he wrote the most absolutely gut-wrenching tragedies. He was actually quite a cheerful chappy. So it's true what Aristotle goes on to say, that catharsis is good for our souls. Sophocles' greatest play, according to Aristotle, no slouch in these matters, is Oedipus the King. Oedipus the King, Oedipus Tyrannus, deemed by Aristotle to be the most perfect tragic play. I pretty much agree, I think it is structurally the most perfect. So the things that Aristotle wants from a tragedy are as follows in this order of importance. Number one, plot. Mythos, that's the most important thing for Aristotle. Whenever anyone tells you that liking plot is a sign of being basically lowbrow and that you should basically, you you just want to watch Transformers films and true, you know, art comes from character study, you should hit them metaphorically or actually over the head with Aristotle. Um, (laughs) If you have to find a statue, that is fair enough. Some of them are heavy, but you would be in the right. Plot is absolutely crucial to drama. He's not talking about a novel. You want to do a lovely novel with a nice internal character study, that's fine. He's talking about drama. Actual stuff happening on an actual stage. Plot, plot, plot. So the plot of Oedipus the King is incredibly complicated and it moves like a freight train. It's just so good. At the beginning of Oedipus the King, the Thebans turn up to their king, Oedipus, and they say, there's plague and we need you to do something about it. Talk to the gods. And he says, I've already sent someone. I've already sent my brother-in-law. Talk to the gods. And they say, the problem is, we're harbouring the murderer of the previous king, Laius, and we need to get rid of him and that will be fine. And then Tiresias, a prophet, a blind prophet, turns up. There's a massive argument between him and Oedipus. And he says, well, you're the killer of the previous king. And Oedipus goes, sends him away with a flea on his ear, at which point Jocasta, Oedipus' wife, says, oh, you shouldn't believe prophets, they never know anything. When I was expecting my first child, they said he'd grow up to kill his dad and marry his mum. <laughs> at this point, your main job as an audience is to be going, ba ba ba. So, in keeping with Aristotle, he said that Oedipus the King was the greatest tragedy. Do you agree? 
Well, I quite like tragedies that are a bit more ethically complicated. <laughs> um, when I'm teaching Greek tragedy, I sort of say it's either bad luck that causes the tragedy and the suffering, or it's bad behaviour, right? <laughs> now, Creon in Antigone is just bad behaviour from day one. He gets into power and he makes a series of incredibly bad decisions all the way through. He's just stupid. Oedipus actually has been doomed since before he was born. It is entirely bad luck. I mean, he may not be a very pleasant person, but being not very pleasant doesn't actually mean that you should discover that you are um, somebody who's committed multiple incest. So I actually would like Oedipus to be more ethically complicated, but that's why Aristotle admired him so much when he's actually writing a book called Poetics, which is basically how to write a good tragedy. He said Sophocles is the one because of this raw simplicity, and that means that you can translate it into other cultures. He doesn't seem dated to me at all. I went to see Oedipus retold the first half of which was the Oedipus Tyrannus, mm. and the second half was a new play they had written in which they'd work out what would happen if Oedipus and his dad had bumped into each other at a place where three roads meet, <laughs> and instead of accidentally killing his father, they have a chat. Oh, um, I, I would have quite liked it if they'd sort of fancied each other. That'd be quite good, you know. Can you... Can you... <laughs> I think oh, that would be another, another twist. Instead of Different sleeping layer with his, of exactly. kill, kill his mother and sleep with his father. Um, and then Oedipus finds out that Laius was killed by bandits at a crossroads and that sort of rings a bell for him because he kind of remembers coming back from the Oracle in Delphi and maybe killing someone at a crossroads, um, as one might. And then a messenger turns up from Corinth and amongst the messages that he has to deliver, he reveals that Oedipus was indeed adopted by his Corinthian royal family, as he believes parents. And then the shepherd that they've sent for to confirm who killed Laius turns out to have also been the shepherd who took baby son of Jocasta and Laius away when he was very small and pinned his feet together, Oedipus swollen foot, um, and left and wait a minute, didn't leave him on a mountainside he was supposed to, but handed him over to somebody from the royal house of Cor At this point, Jocasta goes into the palace and we're not going to hear from her again. She hangs herself. And famously, of course, Oedipus then sees her hanging body. He realises who he is. Uh, he takes the brooch pins from her dress and he blinds himself before being exiled from Troy. I feel like that was a genuine shock to you and I feel really bad about it. <laughs> I haven't just spoiled the ending for you. You've had two and a half thousand years to read this play. <laughs> the only bit I don't like in the whole Oedipus is the bit where the shepherd turns up and they kind of go, oh, you know, you came from the royal household and we've already heard that they got rid of a baby. And he goes, oh, now you're cross with me, Jocasta, because you think I might be the son of a slave. Yeah. Yeah. Don't be ridiculous, man. Have you not listened to the last hour? Uh, What's no, no, going no. on? It's such a duff moment. I can never work out why it's there. Well, it, it isn't, it isn't. But Freud said this is because people with very unpleasant things in, in their past do actually block out ordinary intuitions. There's actually obstructions to thinking the uh, highly likely or highly <laughs> probable sort of inference when it's too painful to see. So you can actually do a sort of retroactive Freudian reading where Oedipus actually cannot see what's staring everybody in the audience <laughs> in the face and indeed Jocasta, you know, who goes yeah, tw she's twigs, it out. Twig, twigs well before he does. My worst bit in the Oedipus is when he says, what did this guy look like that you used to be married to? She <laughs> said, what does it look like? Like, like you? 
And she said, rather like you, but a little bit grey around the temples. And she's like staring at this face, you know, this imprint, this DNA-like vehicle of her husband. And, and, and even imagining him a yes. little greyer. Bring, bring, this is your subconscious calling. <laughs> exactly. So, but things like, the, the thing is that we have actually got from um, ancient Greek communities like Oxyrhynchus in Egypt, where we've dug up all the papyri out of the rubbish dumps. We've actually got law court cases about babies where nobody can figure out their identity before DNA and photography. The fact is that suppositious people and people taking, you know, being in roles that you don't expect them or being discovered later becomes unbelievably important. And that's why they wrote out actually on slaves incredibly minute descriptions of things like, you know, small mole, two fingers to the north of nose or small tattoo on left arm or small dog-shaped scar somewhere or other. These incredibly minute identifiers did actually go on. So with me, I have the problem, therefore, with his funny foot. Yes. You know, it's a funny foot. So I think somebody should have twigged that, especially when he's called funny foot. Yeah, it does make it odd. It does, yeah. So, uh, what was I saying? (laughs) So, So, plot, plot, well remembered, was the most important thing for Aristotle, and I think we can agree that the plot of Oedipus is incredibly complicated and moves at a hell of a lick, even when I'm not doing it. Um, (laughs) The second most important thing, according to Aristotle, is uh, character, ethos. In other words, it doesn't matter if you like the characters, it matters if you care about them, if you believe in them, um, and it matters that they always behave in a coherent manner. For Aristotle, all scenes in any play should both advance the plot and reveal character. So at the beginning, a perfect case in point, the very beginning scene, the citizens turn up and they say, there's a plague, what are you going to do about it? He's already sent the guy to find it out. The guy's already come back, we've got the news. He's quick-tempered, he's impatient, he's clever. We know everything about Oedipus from the very beginning. Everything that we see him do reveals more and more about his character. So first, plot. Second, character. Third, Dianoia, thought, the theme. Does it make you think? What's it about? How do we feel about, you know, I guess the plot of uh, Oedipus the King should make you feel, are we the playthings of the gods? Do we have free will? Is it about being, you know, is our whole existence predetermined? Number four, Lexus, dialogue. In other words, uh, Aristotle would rather you had a good plot and ropey dialogue than good dialogue and a ropey plot, and who would disagree? Number five, melos, music, the singing, the dancing, the chorus. Obviously, we don't have that now, but in a film, you would certainly have a soundtrack. If you don't think that that's important, try to remember that moment where um, Alfred Hitchcock first watches the edited version of the shower scene of Psycho, and it doesn't work. And it's only when they have Bernard Herrmann's score over the top that they realise they've created cinematic history. Number six, the least important thing about a tragedy is opsis, spectacle. Now, to help you remember this is the least important thing, I'd like to remind you of the film Batman and Robin. (laughs) Directed, of course, by Joel Schumacher, in which Arnold Schwarzenegger plays the villain Mr Freeze in a costume which celebratedly, at the time, cost a million dollars. It's a suit with light bulbs on it. Um, Now, here's the thing. If you spend a million dollars on the outfit and roughly between five and seven P on the script... (laughs) You've got it the wrong way round. (laughs) I wanted to talk to somebody who thought very hard about how to make Sophocles work for a modern audience, so I was lucky enough to catch playwright and serial Sophocles adapter Frank McGuinness as he travelled around Ireland teaching... I asked him what it is which keeps drawing him back to Greek tragedy. Well, I think that every version that I do, and I do an awful lot as well as my own original work, I'm trying to learn more and more about how to write a good play. And that's the basic reason why I keep beating my head against these colossus (laughs) works of um, culture. The Greeks, as far as I'm concerned, simply knew everything that needed to be known about the construction of a play. 
And as a craftsman, I want to appreciate the urgency and the delicacy of what they do. And I think that they also knew everything about how much an audience can take in the course of receiving a play. But I think they're the supreme masters that they can teach you an awful lot. I saw your Oedipus Tyrannus, Oedipus the King, at the National Theatre a few years ago with Ray Fiennes. Do you think the dramatic structure is what gives the play such an impact? I think watching it, is, it seems like it should be so other. It's so full of things that most of us can't relate to. Brackets, being destined to kill your dad and marry your mum, not something that we normally come across. But watching it, it's like running downhill. The inexorability of it just drags you towards the end. Do you think that's what does it? Oh, the plot is absolutely perfect. It's relentless. But what really makes it work is how deeply Sophocles roots it in actual human feeling. He does not ever sensationalise the horror. Uh, Oedipus reacts in the way that any man would react. And I think he articulates the sheer scale of guilt, the sheer scale of panic that any human being would endure having discovered this. So I feel there is an authenticity to it which is um, supremely affecting and which an audience absolutely tunes into. Why do you think that modern audiences still flock to see what looks like such an alien world? I saw packed houses for both your Oedipus, which I think is really well-known, but also for probably less well-known plays like the Electra. Um, People can't get enough of them. I know Edith Hall suggested that Greek tragedy has been performed more in the last 50 years than at any time since 5th century BC Athens. And yet, you know, they're still packing them out. Is it the star cast? Is it the star name of the playwright? Is it the star adapter? That's what we're really asking here. Well, I think you might answer the question when you you say that why do stars want to play in them? Yes. And they want to play in them because they are thoroughly satisfying roles, thoroughly demanding. They call on every resource, technical and emotional that an actor could possess. They stretch you in the bright way. They confront you with playing uh, solitary on stage and with uh, ensemble acting. And I think that's why the big names and the great actors want to do them. But the other thing about them is that at some terrible core of them, they tell us the truth. And people do ultimately go to the theatre to be confronted with truths. Sophocles Philoctetes has been a metaphor for war, for AIDS, for all four horsemen of the apocalypse, to be honest with you. I asked Edith Hall why the stories still stand up so well. They're very uncluttered. They are a director's dream. I mean, Sophocles was completely minimalist theatre writer before Beckett. And Beckett actually loved Sophocles because of this. If you take the example of the Philoctetes, all you do is basically stick four men on an island together. No women, they're not related, there's no culture, there's no law, there's no police, there's just four men on a desert island and tell them to try and sort out their relationships and who's good and who's bad and invent ethics on the hoof. I mean, it's incredibly modern and avant-garde. And that's why I get a bit upset when people sometimes say that Sophocles is rather sort of safe and traditional compared with Euripides, say, because actually I think he was the great experimentalist when it comes, if you actually think of it coming to it as a theatre practitioner, which I have another hat, which is then you actually see what he's up to. That is an extraordinary play by any possible standards. And Beckett, in fact, in um, Happy Days, is, is known to have been thinking very much about Philoctetes alone in the desert when he has Winnie alone in the sand. Yes, and four men not related to each other trying to work out the ethics of the world sounds a little bit like Waiting for God. Just a little, tiny bit. A little bit. And it's talking shot. Nothing actually happens in that play. You know, but it's riveting. It is absolutely impossible. Seamus Heaney knew it was riveting. That's why he adapted it. Um, 
So the third thing that I really want to talk to you about with uh, Sophocles is the fact that I think that he invented the detective drama. I think he invented the TV detective, the detective film, the fictional detective. I think it's all him. Number one is that Oedipus is a massive whodunit, right? Well, especially for you now that I've ruined it. Sorry. <laughs> I think he invents the modern detective because Oedipus is a whodunit. At the beginning of the play, we are told that we need to know who Laius' killer is, who killed the previous king. He's harboured secretly in the city. We need to know who he is. At the end of the play, we really know who he is. And so does everyone else. At the beginning of the Ajax, uh, the goddess Athena says to Odysseus, he's always her favourite, of course, she says, look at you, you're basically like a, a bloodhound. You're you know, tracking footsteps through the, on the beach. What are you doing? And he reveals that what he's doing is trying to find the perpetrator of this terrible crime. Somebody, Ajax, has got, sorry, it happens right at the beginning. Um, somebody has killed cattle and sheep. We later find out that uh, he thinks he's killing his colleagues but he's tricked by the goddess into killing animals instead. So uh, at the very beginning of the play, what we're just trying to find out is who killed all these animals uh, because something terrible has happened. And then he says, well, yeah, I'm following the footprint, but also when we were woken up last night and we found all these dead animals and um, there were some witnesses that I've spoken to who saw Ajax carrying a sword with blood dripping on it. It's like, wait, you're following footprints and you've spoken to some witnesses <laughs> who saw somebody with the murder weapon <laughs> leaving the library with a length of lead piping. This is, this is a pure whodunit. And the thing is that um, what I really love about it is that almost all detectives, almost all great detectives, there are very few exceptions um, who are properly well-rounded and lovely people. DCI Barnaby of Midsummer Murders, Columbo. That's it, basically. <laughs> Generally, a detective is exactly like what the classical scholar Bernard Knox described as a, a Sophoclean hero, i.e. they are excessive, they feel things too strongly. Oedipus is too quick-tempered, he's too impatient. This is why he ended up fighting somebody at a crossroads and killing them. The fact that it turned out to be his dad was really bad luck. But <laughs> he had to be quite impetuous and quite bad-tempered to begin with. And this happens over and over again in tragedy. And I think this is a perfect echo of all the great you know, detectives. Sherlock Holmes is as soon, he's very self-destructive. As soon as he doesn't have a case to distract him immediately onto the drugs. He's quite happy to pretend to be dead for a bit because he's so isolated. He doesn't have friends. He shoots holes in the wall. That's not the behaviour of somebody who's trying to make friends with the neighbours. <laughs> But the best example, I think, probably, is uh, Inspector Morse. He is a pure Sophoclean hero, right? He's super passionate. We know that he cares about the case. Um, we see that uh, Nietzsche style, he gazes long enough into the abyss, the abyss gazes also into him, right? He's always trying to listen to beautiful music to drown out the darkness that he's seen. Um, he's desperate for a friend. You know, at the end of a day's crime solving, he's the one who always wants to go to the pub. Lewis is always like, you know, I've got to get back to my wife and kids. Morse has nothing to go home to. And uh, he has diabetes in the books. So I think he dies in the... Oh, God, I'm reading it again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't make it to the end of I'm not going to lie to you it doesn't make it to the end of the last Morse book well that's why they have Lewis you already knew that that's why there's Lewis and not Morse I think that detective drama has stolen a huge amount from Sophocles especially the flawed hero so obviously I needed to talk to TV critic and massive detective nerd Andrew Collins why do you think we need our detectives so flawed I guess because they always solve the case and if we're talking about uh, detectives who are enough to have a series of books written about them and therefore become a franchise on television, then 
We know they're going to solve the case. We would not sit and watch them over an hour or two hours, including adverts. If they didn't solve it, that wouldn't work. So because it's such a mechanical format, we need that hero to be flawed. Otherwise, they will be uh, frightful and irritating. You wouldn't want to be around them. They need to have something wrong in order to be good at the thing that they're supposed to be good at, which is deducing and uh, being logical and spotting clues and then explaining them to and us. And does that help us connect to them as viewers? Otherwise, I always think that if the world sort of goes off kilter with a murder and the the detective comes in and fixes everything. That detective is operating at a, a superhuman level. It's true, and that, and this is why. So if you look at Poirot, Poirot is kind of socially adept in the sense that he's very polite and has a lot of manners. Um, you know, he doesn't seem to have a social life. Uh, he can't cope with mess. No, he's very careful about how his tea is made and uh, other things. And uh, you've got the same with uh, Sherlock Holmes as well. He's said to have an aversion to, to women and certainly has a difficult relationship with women and yet doesn't appear to be outwardly gay. So you tend to find that detectives are slightly socially separate and awkward. So you wouldn't necessarily want to be them, but you're glad they've arrived to come and solve the case. So if the floor is they can't get on with other people in the same way that we'd like to, then that makes them an ideal candidate to be godlike in the way that they can deduce how a crime has happened. And sometimes the floor is incredibly self-destructive, I think. Obviously, Sherlock Holmes has his drug habit. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the amount of, uh, of drunken detectives is quite astonishing. And uh, if you look even at someone like Bergerac, at the very beginning, he's, uh, he's come back to the force after breaking his leg because he was drunk on duty uh, and he's still battling the demons of alcoholism. That's before it even begins. And there are loads of other ones. Poirot also uh, has a war wound uh, and has a limp. And so there's often a lot of physical injury as well, which, again, is a very simple way of just showing they're not perfect. The detective as murderer is obviously what happens in Oedipus the King. They're looking for a man who's a pollutant on the city. Oh, wait a minute, the person looking is the person. Who is it? Yeah. It seems to me that this is an extraordinarily pure kind of detective story. But do you think that guilt, not necessarily of the uh, pure Oedipal kind, mm. but guilt generally is a big motivator for our detectives? Yeah, I don't think this is a spoiler because those who love Poirot will have read the books and seen the final Poirot they must adventure. Have. Let's, yeah. let's, let's risk it because in the final uh, adventure that uh, Agatha Christie wrote for Poirot. Uh, he's in a, uh, quite a poor state himself, physically. He's been pushed around in a wheelchair and he uh, is taking uh, medicine to for his heart. Yes. And he deliberately withholds that medicine at the end, thus killing himself, because he has murdered the man who has caused a number of murders, unsolved murders over the years. He's a murder catalyst, yeah. isn't he? He forces uh, other people into Iago committing type. murder. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's a brilliant example of the detective with guilt. Although, obviously, up to that point, he'd never done anything terrible to anyone, but he had to, to make the ultimate sacrifice in the end and became the guilty detective. He became Oedipus. Hmm. I think a lot of detectives are motivated by some sort of guilty emotion I think you know especially the Scandinavian ones yeah they've all got broken families behind them and they're trying to render themselves a better person through detecting than they were for example father or yeah. husband yeah, and if you if you go to uh, the, the Scandinavian strain of uh, crime drama which is now very big um, Sarah Lunt has a troubled relationship with her son and the actress Sophie Gabrol said in an, in an interview that uh, the only important relationship in her life is the one she's having with the case that yes. she's working on. So that's ideal in terms of solving the case, but much less ideal when she gets home at night and takes off her jumper and goes, I'm me, I'm a bit lonely because there's nobody here. 
And do you think it's impossible for the detective genre to move away from this kind of Sophoclean ideal, this idea of the flawed hero, the monomania, the need to pursue and find the truth at all costs? It seems to me that it's so integral to the idea of a detective drama, it couldn't exist without, really. No, that's true. And I'd say the only thing that isn't Sophoclean about detective dramas is that you always have more than three characters in them. Otherwise, there wouldn't be enough people to arrange in the drawing room at the end. You can have more than three characters in them, it's just you've only got three actors, so they're going to have to run on in different hands. So if it weren't for Sophocles, number one, we would never have two people having a conversation and then somebody interrupting them. And number two, uh, we would have no TV detectives. That would be an enormous loss as far as I'm concerned. And that is why I love Sophocles. And next week, Nathalie Hayes will be standing up for the Roman writer Virgil and finding out, amongst other things, about bears and bees. Natalie Haynes' Stands Up for the Classics is produced in Bristol by Christine Hall.